0: Well, I, uh, Autumn, where's Autumn? Autumn, you said your, your heart was about to explode, I think you said. I mean, I, I um, this, is a, this is a dream for me as well. Uh, when we started Crosstown Church, we wanted so badly to be a church for the city. We wanted so badly just to see kingdom of God realities begin to break out. And um, never in my wildest dreams would I imagine that uh, we would be able to put our two churches together on a Sunday like this and worship the Lord together. I have to, I have to begin by thanking Jerome and Autumn. Um, This wouldn't be happening if it wasn't for many conversations that we had over the years, Uh, just talking about what the church should look like, what the church should be. You know how hard it was for us to bless you and say, go, but we loved you. You guys served our church so well, and now here we are. Here we are, so thank you. I have to say a huge thanks to Pastor Lubin. When, when my wife and I visited here several months ago, he uh, welcomed me to come up and, and give a, I think, it, it, what is it, a, a welcome from our church. And I didn't even know what that means, but I started to almost preach. And this brother just allowed me to come up here and talk and, and uh, share a little bit out of my heart. And so we had him come and preach for us, you know that, this summer. And he asked me if our space was big enough for all of True Vine to come, and I said, uh, I don't know, I don't know, and, uh, and so we didn't do that, but when he got done preaching, I went down, and I said, brother, you serve us so well, he said, I want you to come preach at our church, and I want you to bring your whole church when you come, so Pastor Lubin, thank you, thank you for making this happen, thank you so much. So then I I, uh, announced to our church, what, three, four weeks ago, I said, on October 1st, we're not going to be here, and we're going to be in Spencer, we're going to gather with our brothers and sisters at True Vine. And the anticipation, the excitement in our church uh, has been building. So many, I know, are excited to be here. Not everybody could make the drive and come, but uh, thanks to True Vine Church, brothers and sisters... I knew that we would be nothing but welcomed, and uh, that this would be a joy for all of us. So thank you. Thank you for your invitation. I I suppose I could just stay up here and relish the moment, Um, but my assignment is to preach the word to you this morning. And so at our church, as you saw in the the video, uh, we have been studying together the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. We've just begun. We're only a couple weeks into it. And, uh, and so since we had already planned out the series, uh, I just decided that what I would do for you is continue on in our series. Is that OK? Can we do that? So um, we're in Matthew chapter 5. If you'll find your place there, let me let me. Uh, I'm going to read the scripture for you, and I love your instinct because I was going to ask you to stand. But you don't have to stand yet. <laughs> you don't have to stand yet. Um, uh, well, let me just kind of get us up to speed with where I want us to be today, okay? We're going to be in Matthew 5, 17 to 20. And right before this passage begins, uh, what we studied together last week in the verses that precede this is Jesus' plan for the world through his church, what Jesus believes, expects, promises will be true because he is founding his one church. His plan for his people, for his church, as you know in the verses that precede this, he uses two metaphors. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. This is his plan. This is his promise. This is what he knows will be true for all those who worship him As Lord, we are called, all of us, we are called to represent to the world the reality that God has inaugurated a new covenant in Jesus, the Lord that we worship and the Lord that we follow. So if we are going to let our light shine, Matthew 5 16 says, and do good deeds in the world in such a way, that the world will be led to glorify our God, then how do we do that? All right, let's take a look at it. Would you stand with me as we read together Matthew chapter five, verses 17 to 20. Here's what Jesus says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the very word of God. And you can be seated. I want to submit to you today that these verses are key to the realization of what Jesus expects of us to be salt and light in the world. I want you to notice here in these verses, first, Jesus' claim. Second, his clarification. And then third, his concern. Jesus' claim, his clarification, his concern. So first, notice the claim that Jesus makes in this passage. In verse 17, he says that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now that's a claim that Jesus is making. And and we need to be asking ourselves if we're gonna be salt and light in the world and do good deeds in such a way that the world will say something's different. There's a different reality that exists in the world that we haven't seen anywhere else. Then we need to know what it means when Jesus says this claim. I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. What does it mean and how significant is that claim? Just consider for a moment with me this word fulfill. In Matthew's gospel, it is a very important word. And one commentator says that the meaning of this entire passage before us today hangs on our understanding of this one word. Jesus does not say that he came to do the law, or the prophets. Now, we often read the text that way, as if Jesus is referring here to his sinless obedience to everything that God commanded. True enough, it's just not what Jesus is claiming here. When we hear the word law, we are prepared to speak of somebody doing the law or obeying the law. But notice that Jesus says not just the law, he also says the law or the prophets. And when you hear the word prophecy, you're prepared to think of the word fulfill. We do the law, that's what we think. We look for fulfillment of prophecies. The word fulfill here then refers to the realization Of something anticipated, like a prediction or a promise. So, in speaking of his mission to fulfill the law and the prophets, you know what Jesus is doing here? He is showing us how we ought to read the Bible, how we're supposed to read the Old Testament. This is like foundational, basic to the Christian faith, and we need to get this right. You see, many people read the Old Testament. As if, and the New Testament for that matter, as if it were a list of rules that we have to obey. But we're going to miss something really important here if we don't learn to read it first as a great promise, waiting for the time when it would be fulfilled. All right, so what is the promise? What is the promise that Jesus has come to fulfill? How could we summarize it? What is it that the Old Testament is yearning for, looking forward to, longing for the day? What is the great anticipation that Jesus says he had come to bring to its realization, to its fulfillment? Now, many of us Christians have forgotten what it is, and we have lost our sense of wonder. And I contend that in forgetting what the promise is, losing our sense of wonder, we have therefore compromised our witness in the world. I'm just getting warmed up here, Crosstown. This is what happens at the end of my sermons, but I'm just now getting getting this worked up. We are not having the salt and light effect that Jesus says we are meant to have precisely because we've forgotten the story. We've forgotten what's promised. We've forgotten the anticipation that Jesus says, the day has come. I've come to fulfill it. Now, I know, and I think that sure it's true that all of us who call ourselves Christians know that when Jesus was born, when Jesus arrived, something significant was happening. All Christians seem to understand that something was important about Jesus being born, Jesus's life, Jesus's death, his resurrection from the dead on Easter Sunday. But the problem is we have become so used to that story, so accustomed to the stories of Jesus that we have forgotten just how radical this was. Oh, Jesus is nice, we say, but I've got real problems in my life. I've got big problems to solve in my marriage. I've got big problems to solve on the job. Jesus is nice, but let's get on to the real stuff. Jesus is nice, we think, you know, for church on Sunday. Few religious moments here and there. And probably at that moment when I'm nearing the end of my life, I'm glad there's Jesus for those moments. But let's get on. You know, we got real news happening in the day. Brothers and sisters, I've got to find a way this morning to get our attention. So let me see if I can say it another way. Jesus' claim that he he had come to fulfill the law and the prophets is an earth-shattering claim. It is life-altering. It is apocalyptic Jesus is not nice he's nuclear now see Crosstown. here's the thing here's the thing true vine knows that not just because of how they responded just then but we sang it this morning I wrote it down there is power in the name of Jesus Uh, I think the song said, I I was trying to write it down, things change at the name of Jesus. Now look at verse 18. I'm going to prove it to you. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a Yoda, not a dot will pass from the law, until all is accomplished. And put that together with what Jesus claimed in verse 17, and you see the point, don't you? If Jesus did indeed fulfill everything in the law and the prophets, all the way down to the Yoda, the dot, the smallest details, heaven and earth have passed away. Something apocalyptic has happened. Now, of course, that's a figure of speech, but it's also one that in the Bible is filled with enormous significance. You see, in the Bible heaven and earth passing away refers to the time in which the world will experience the cataclysmic events that happen when God takes over his world again. So if Jesus has indeed fulfilled the law, are you listening to me? This is the most globally relevant news that has ever taken place. If Jesus' claim is true, then the whole world has been rocked by this reality. Everything has been changed by Jesus. Now, let me just give you a little, little suggestion. Just take your Bible sometime and start reading what happens after Jesus. Start reading Acts. Start reading the rest of the New Testament. And here's what you'll, if you read it in the sense that what if people believed that Jesus actually radically transformed everything, brought the reality of the kingdom of God on earth, what kind of life would begin to emerge? How would you begin to live? If you read your New Testament that way, you will get the sense that that's exactly what the first Christians believed. It's how they began to live dramatically different lives. What explains the book of Acts? It's the reality of the long-awaited kingdom of God that had come with Jesus of Nazareth. And the world has never been the same. Now, what if we in our generation dared to believe the same thing? What if we began to take the realities, the problems, the brokenness of our world and said, in the name of Jesus, everything begins to change. I would think that the world that we see today will continue to be rocked by Jesus. Now, next, I want you to notice there's a clarification. Did you see it? There's a clarification in our text that Jesus makes and that we need to understand. Do not think, Jesus says, that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. In other words, as Jesus will make plain... His fulfillment of the law does not mean that the law no longer applies. I'm talking about the Old Testament. The law no longer applies or that somehow we can set it aside or do away with it. Jesus apparently wants us to be careful here and not misunderstand him. When he says, do not think, we are warned that it is easy to get the wrong idea from Jesus' claim that he had come to fulfill the law. You know what it's like to be misunderstood, don't you? Here you are trying to make an important point to someone and they take you to be arguing for some perceived implication of that point. You just shake your head and say, "What That's not what I'm talking about." You criticize a politician or a political party and everyone thinks you must be on the other side. All right. Wives, you give your husband a little constructive criticism. And the next thing you know, he's all down and depressed, acting like you've just told him you hate everything about it. Just speaking for myself here, maybe. I don't know. This is the kind of thing that happens all the time. And many have done the same thing with Jesus and his words right here. Well, Jesus fulfilled the law, so none of it matters anymore. Now, you look down to verse 21, and you'll see why some people might think that. You have heard that it was said, Jesus begins, and then he cites from the Ten Commandments. And in verse 22, he begins, but I say to you, and do not think. It sure looks like Jesus is daring to say that he has the right to speak in some kind of antithetical way to the Old Testament rules and regulations that were given to govern God's chosen people. In fact, all throughout his life, this would be a constant, a constant accusation. Well, the Pharisees and their disciples fast. How come your disciples don't fast? Jesus' disciples, look, they don't wash their hands when they eat, just like the elders have said they're supposed to do. And how about all those times when Jesus and his disciples are accused of not keeping the Sabbath? Remember that? You find it over and over and over again. It's not a stretch even to say that it's this misunderstanding of Jesus was the thing that got him killed. It's not true that Jesus wanted to tear down the law and its expectations for how we're supposed to live. And so it's not true that his followers are supposed to do that either. Here's the thing. Sadly, there are many who call themselves Christians but who act as if it does not matter anymore about how we live our lives. For all practical purposes, it's like I trust in Jesus and Jesus abolished all expectations for how Christians ought to be in the world. It's a misunderstanding of Jesus that To think that to be a follower of Jesus comes with no demands over our lives. Now, of course, there are other Christians, you know them, who who rightly see Jesus' clarification here and latch on to it. Oh, yeah. They then begin to emphasize this point and this point alone and forget the radical claim of fulfillment. They set out to keep every detail of every command. And while that sounds admirable, you just think, something's off. Something's off. So they read Jesus here in verses twenty-one to twenty-two. I know it's next week's sermon, but and, and they say, Well, yes, murder is wrong, but so is being angry at someone. So even though that unarmed person just died at the hands of law enforcement, you shouldn't be angry at the news of another senseless murder. Something's off here. Or they read Jesus and what he has to say about divorce in verses 31 to 32 and become judgmental toward those who have been through it, treating them like second-class people even in the church. Something's off here. Or how about the command in verse 39? It's it's a famous one. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. How many times has that command been turned against a genuine victim to try to silence them and suppress the cry against injustice? Something is off here. Or... I come across a person in need, begging for money. I've got something to share, but, you know, a homeless alliance says, don't give those panhandlers anything. And Jesus said, the poor will always be with you. So I go on then ignoring the needy and feel justified for doing so. Something is off here. We go on being, in other words, self-righteous judgmental heartless Pharisees my concern in the world is not how non-Christians live it's for how so many of us who claim to know Christ live we justify our sin in the world because we are certain of our doctrine in our heads How can we take Jesus' claim that he came to fulfill the law? How can we take that in full force while also not ending up believing and behaving as if that now means that he has abolished the law and we can just get on and do whatever we want and whatever is to our own advantage? How can we hold all of this together? If we Christians are going to be salt and light in a world that desperately needs it, we have to hold it together. We've got to keep both of this. We've got to not misunderstand Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the law and the prophets anticipated. And Jesus requires us to not relax any one of his righteous commandments. If we're going to be salt and light, We've got to believe them both. How do we do it? How do we do it? One commentator helpfully points out that he who fulfills the law and the prophets displaces them insofar as he must become now the center of attention. Are you listening? The one who fulfills the law displaces them in this way in that he now becomes the one who has brought the fulfillment. He becomes the center of attention. The thing signified, anticipated, Jesus, is naturally now more important than the sign that pointed to him. So we must not interpret Jesus in light of the law and the prophets the other way around. As the fulfillment, Jesus is where we are to look if we want to understand what the entire story of the Bible was getting at in the first place. Jesus changes the way that we read our Bibles. We would read them very differently were it not for Jesus. Now, from now on then, it will be the authoritative teaching of Jesus which must govern his disciples understanding and practical application of the law Amen. verses 21 to 48 you've you've seen these verses before they're going to go on to show how this interpretation can no longer, what the Bible's getting at, what it expects of us as God's people, can no longer be merely at the level of the literal observance of regulations. It has to operate at a deeper and more challenging level of discerning the will of God which underlies the legal rulings of the Torah. If in the process of seeing everything now in light of Jesus It appears that certain elements of the law are, in fact, for all practical purposes, abolished. This will be attributable not to the loss of their status as the word of God, but to their changed role in an era of fulfillment. In which it is Jesus, the fulfiller, rather than the law, which pointed forward to him, who is the ultimate authority. So we have seen then this morning the claim that Jesus makes in these verses. And we have noted the clarification that is meant to keep us from misunderstanding. But let us end this morning by also pointing out the concern that Jesus expresses, especially in verses 19 to 20. Now listen... There's a lot at stake in our passage before us this morning. These verses have been called the main thesis statement of the Sermon on the Mount. Crucial to our understanding of everything that Jesus says in his most famous teaching. So if you're a Christian, or you're interested in being a Christian, here is a good place to go To see something of a summary of what that means. After all, in verses 19 to 20, Jesus makes it plain that what he is teaching here is something of a boundary line for the kingdom of God and who is on either side of it. Here's his concern. His concern is... His concern is that we are among those who enter the kingdom of God rather than those who are left on the outside looking in. That's what he wants. That's what he wants for everyone. Notice that he draws the line in two places. First in verse 19. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, notice here, the ESV says to relax, relax a command. Relaxing the command, the word that's actually translated relax here, uh, is the same as breaking it. And some English versions translate it that way, but I like this translation. I like the word relax, and here's why. For you and me, I'm guessing, maybe this isn't true for all of us, but when we speak of breaking a commandment, typically we mean violating it at some point. And so we tend to think that do not break the law, do, if, if we were to translate it that way, would seem to mean that we have never sinned. And that would be wrong. Completely incorrect. One was considered a person who broke the law if they either affirmed what the law forbid or granted exemptions to what it required. That's what it means to break the law. Essentially, it means to invalidate its authority. And if you do that, Jesus says, and teach others to do the same, you will be called, what? Least in the kingdom of heaven. That doesn't just mean that you'll barely get in. Verse 20 makes it explicit. If you invalidate the authority of any part of God's word, you won't get in at all. You see his concern? Do not claim... Jesus as now giving you the right to just live your life however you want. This is the, you wanna know why we're not, why we struggle to be salt and light in a world that desperately needs it? Do not claim Jesus as giving you the authority to disregard the entire counsel of God. Do that, and you'll be on the outside of the kingdom looking in. That's on the authority of the word of God. Now, the kingdom of heaven is not another way of talking about the place that we often call heaven. It is, in simple terms, the reign or rule of God on earth. It's what the entire Old Testament hope is pointing to, right? The apocalyptic time. The time of the end. When God, as he promised, would exercise his authority over earth, just like he does in heaven. That's the kingdom of heaven. That's the kingdom of God. And Jesus, as we've already seen, made a claim. He claimed that in him, that hope, That end had arrived. So entering the kingdom of heaven has to do with coming under God's rule and reign now. Right now. That invitation is open to everyone. Now, listen to me. You can't earn your way into the kingdom any more than you earn your way into a public park. You just go in. The kingdom of God is open to everyone. Whoever will can come. He is gracious. He is generous. He is loving. His concern is, I want you to come under the gracious rule and reign of God. But if you come... I went to a park one day, and they had, the, they had rules on the playground. If you're going to be in the park, here they are, and they start spelling them out, and I like the last one, have fun. Have fun. If you come and submit to his rule and reign, you got to learn how to live in his kingdom. And if you steadfastly refuse to do so, well, then you can't come in. You can't be a part of it. Jesus and his grace are the only way in, but Jesus and his grace continue to be the way once you are in, and you must learn to live in his way. There are two lines that are drawn here, though. Do you see the second one? It's in verse 20, and it goes like this. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) I can imagine the disciples shaking their heads, can't you? (laughs) You know the scribes and Pharisees, they're pretty meticulous. Following the rules. But Jesus says here that the kingdom of God demands more, not less, not even different than what they were doing. If that sounds impossible, well, that's just the point. What Jesus demands is not something you can just go out and do outperforming the professionals. But it would be a mistake to downplay this demand and settle for the idea elsewhere taught in the Bible of the righteousness of Christ credited to us by faith. Commentators will point out that just doesn't work here. That's not what Jesus is saying. He is, in fact, talking about how you have to live as a citizen of the kingdom. This is a righteousness he expects you to do. And those expectations begin to be set out for us again in verses 21 to 48. It's clear from those verses that what this is, Exceeding righteousness will require is not some mere change of our habits, but a change of our hearts. Hmm. Just consider, just consider what it would truly mean in verse 44 to love your enemies. You can sit on that one for a long time. Not tolerate your enemies. Love them. You know how Jesus can expect that from you? He said it. Preacher, tell me if I'm saying it right here. He said it. Your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. You know why Jesus can expect that from it? Because he's the one who gives it to you. If, in fact, we believe that Jesus has fulfilled the law and the prophets, then what we must believe that Jesus has brought with him is everything that the law and the prophets prophesied, predicted. If Jesus fulfilled them all to the smallest detail, then if you believe in Jesus, do you understand who you are, brother and sister? You are one who has already now been given all the fulfillments, all the promises that the entire Bible was looking forward to, longing for the day. When will it come? Jesus says it has come. And in Christ, all of that is true for you. All of it. This is why, by the way, in the New Testament, the the. The apostle Paul usually can speak so explicitly about if you are in Christ, then you are dead. And if you are in Christ, then you are gloriously resurrected, alive. Because what is true of the Messiah, what is true of Jesus, is now true of you. Here's one of the things the prophets promised. The promise of a day when God would make a new covenant with his people. A time in which, according to Jeremiah 31, God would put his law within them and write it on their hearts. So do not think that what I'm saying today is, It's really good you're a Christian, now go try harder. No, no, (laughs) boy, do not think. Don't try harder, but trust him more. Brothers and sisters, listen. Jesus expects a lot from us. We are the salt of the earth, he said. We are the light of the world. But what Jesus expects of us, he has already given. So if you feel like you failed, come to Jesus and find your true friend. If you know that you have sinned, come to Jesus and find a real Savior. If you're discouraged, Come to Jesus and find your true defender. Jesus has everything you need. He has brought the great story of the Bible to its fulfillment. And in him, you will find a righteousness that far exceeds anything that anyone could ever possess on their own. Let us pray. Father in heaven, teach us of the bounty that is ours in Christ. <laughs> Show us the reality of who we are in the Messiah. Hmm. Keep us, O oh Lord, close to you. We have work to do this week, we have families. To go home to. We have jobs to fulfill or jobs to find. We have needs that have to be met. And we have a friend who needs a brother or sister. You have a lot of, you have high expectations for us. Salt of the earth, light of the world, But everything that you require of us, you have given to us graciously, freely. We find ourselves perplexed. We find ourselves in what seems to be impossible dilemmas of how we're supposed to be the people of God right here where you've placed us. And yet the promise of the prophets is that in this new covenant, in Messiah Jesus, everything that we are going to need for the challenges ahead are there. We won't see it probably until you have done your work. But just as sure as the promise was anticipated, The promise has now come to pass. So make us, O Lord, not weary for trying harder, but hungry and thirsty for trusting Jesus and living in light of the reality of his kingdom. Grant us this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you.